Father, thank you for your love and grace, and thank you for your word, Isaiah, amazing, and ask that you give me wisdom and grace to understand your word and communicate it to all of us to own this and live this out. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Isaiah 27, uh, starting with verse 1. You ready? So, uh, on that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even the Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. On that day, a vineyard of beauty, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout. And they will fill the whole world with fruit. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's wrongdoing will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones. When Asherim and incense altars will not stand. Where the fortified city is isolated, a homestead deserted and abandoned like the desert. There the calf will graze. And there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they're broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. On that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing stream of the Euphrates River to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered up one by one, you sons of Israel. It will come about also on that day that a great trumpet will be blown and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Amazing. You ready to dig in? All right. What do you do with verse 1? On that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, uh, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So let's kind of dig in on that. Um, it's a bit of a challenging text. And so here we go. And why am I not uh, on screen? Uh, St- Stephen, what is this? Okay, all right, so we've got several interpretive options for that. 
option one is the, this language of Leviathan. By the way, notice the serpent is fleeing, not running toward, toward the potential prey like, like it's hunting, but it's fleeing, which is really interesting. With this fierce and great sword, God's going to come at this Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So it's a literal primordial creature, a dinosaur-like creature. That's one interpretation. Another one, it's descriptive language of a crocodile-like animal, possibly a hippopotamus. And we realize that a hippopotamus kind of looks like a fat, pudgy, little, you know, stuffed animal. But are you aware that more humans are killed by hippopotamus than by crocodiles? I, I don't know if you're aware of that. They're actually dangerous, and they're really fast on land, believe it or not. So is it that kind of a, kind of a creature? Um, or is it going to be the, the next one here? Uh, Israel is just adopting localized religious language. Okay, Israel didn't come up with this on its own. God didn't reveal it to Israel. Israel is grabbing from localized religions, and they're either creation myth or they're, they're mythic language for monsters in the sea. You've got the Babylonian creation myth that Marduk kills the sea monster Taima. So Israel grabbing that story and kind of making it her story, or the Ugarit myth of the sea month or Lotan. You get the idea. Um, and, and by the way, you know, 100 years ago, that was a hot item right there in theology. All, all kind of scholars said, this is very much an example of Israel adopting localized religion and borrowing from them. But actually, uh, modern scholars who are doing tremendous work with Hebrew manuscripts and understanding religious cultures uh, argued that this, this localized religious stuff, Sabrina, is not the antecedent okay, to what's in Isaiah. It's not. It's actually uh, something else. So let's keep digging here. Or poetic language associated with the exodus and the defeat of uh, the Egyptians at the Red Sea. That's an option, okay? Another one, uh, five, poetic language uh, describing Israel's enemies. Not localized religions, and we're going to borrow that mythic language. It's localized enemies. Assyria straight to the north. Babylon far northeast, and then Egypt straight south, okay? Or six, possibly poetic language describing the embodiment of Satan. So, what say ye? <laughs> okay. Yes. I'm just going to go with one because the Leviathan is described in Job 40. Yes, actually, Job 41. Great. That's good. And yeah. I'm, 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 we're, we're digging in. Okay. Let's, what do you think? Because it talks about the tail, like a cedar. Right. That's not... I wouldn't be a hippopotamus. I got a little tiny tail. Yeah. 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 That's good. That's really good. All right. What else? Remember, remember, let's put it in the context of Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying and calling Israel to repentance, calling Jacob to return. 
right? Warning, Assyria's coming. Babylon's coming. It's going to be bad, okay? And that's the context that this is set in. And on that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, who flees the Lord. Leviathan, whatever it is, it's running from God. It's not running to attack him. It's running away from him. There might be a hint in that. Anybody else? What would be, and by the way, there might be other interpretations that you're, you're noting that I have not. What say ye, Janice? Five. Five, I'm going to go Just with five. Because okay. of the language that follows in the rest of the chapter, comparing, well, Jacob to, he will take, uh, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout. So he's using symbolic language that they okay. have been very familiar okay. with. Okay, yep, that's good. You're thinking contextually. That's good. Mm-hmm. Good. All right, somebody else? Can it be more than one? Yeah. What do you think, Maddie? Okay. I would add six to it. You'd say what, dear? All right, what about Genesis 3? Would they be aware of a serpent, a cunning serpent? You know? But this, this serpent apparently is either standing, like upright standing, like I am standing upright, near the tree. Or this serpent is like, you know, we often see in the paintings it's twisted around a limb or something, and, you know, tempting, tempting Eve from, from that position above. But when you read the ancient, the ancient text, uh, this could be an upright creature. A lot of, a lot of, like we've already said, a lot of Isaiah's dualism, anyways. Right. And right. so it is like what Mary was saying there. It's, it's multiple meanings and multiple interpretations. Right. And on some of the research I've been doing, a lot of times the reason why I get in Revelation when it says the sea will be dried up, the sea was that sometimes a symbol of, of what sin is. And Leviathan would be in sin. He would be part of that sin. That's where he was in. And right. he would be fleeing because when the wrath of God comes, he will wipe away, he'll get rid of his sin. Yeah, that's so good. So Leviathan would that's be good. Satan, would be the prime person of that. Yeah. And then also, like I said, in historical. You know, it could be, it could actually have been an actual creature, but also he used an image for the enemy. Right, right. That's so good. Um, uh, David, do you recall, or, any, or help David out? How do we know that the creature, the serpent in the garden, would have possibly been standing upright? By implication, how do we know that? Evidently, right? Later, he's going to crawl on his belly. Exactly. Yeah. As a part of the as part of the judgment, he no longer is an upright creature, but now crawls on his belly, and that's judgment language, not we're just describing the flora and fauna of the day. So is that it? You know? Um, when you do the reading in Revelation, you might remember this. Um, the sea is often used as a metaphor for chaos. How do you control the sea? 
right? And, and that's why the, um, the 12 disciples were absolutely fascinated that Jesus could command the wind and the, and the wave and they would obey him. That, that was something that would literally be mind-blowing you know, from their perspective because the water, chaotic water, was, was considered evil and a bad thing, the churning and the hammering of the oceans and things. So, um, Anybody else on what would be the most likely the, the intended interpretation that Isaiah would have when he penned those words? Are these our only six options or even the rest of the second? This is, I don't have a second page, yeah. That's, that's true, that's, that's good. That's all that I have. There could be others, but, but that's all that I'm working with. Let's work on number three for a minute. All right. What is the, when I say the word antecedent, what does that mean? The antecedent of a thing. Like for, like for example, let me use it in a sentence that'll make sense. So John the Baptist baptized, right? And he was baptizing according to the scriptures people for the remission of sins. All right. Is there an antecedent to that? Are there, were there baptismal practices that predate, predate or an antecedent to John's type of baptism? And if so, what was the antecedent? What predated it? Jewish ceremonial baptisms, and there was a lot of them. Does that make sense? So that's the idea of antecedent. So is the Babylonian, Ugaritic, and Hittite myths are they the antecedent to Israel's language in Job 41 and Revelation in Genesis and certainly here in Isaiah about this chaotic sea and this terrible sea monster that's deadly and dangerous and uncontrollable. When you read Isaiah 41, it's basically language that you don't control this thing. It's dangerous. You don't get your fish hooks in it or your harpoons. This thing's huge and dangerous. You know, whatever it is, it's bad. Did Israel get these ideas from localized religious cultures? Or, there's another explanation for this, the similar stories. More likely, there was, you know, doing any kind of, you didn't have long-range sailing at that time. Anything that was out there that was pretty large, every culture would know about it, but they'd have their own version of describing it. Mm. That's interesting, David, because what is the, what is the Christian, well, the, the Judeo-Christian story of creation? What was it like? What was the water like? It starts right off with the water. What is the water like? Certainly, what, yeah, there was waters in the heavens, but it's chaotic. Yeah. It's chaotic, it's formless and void, and it's, it's an out-of-control thing. And God brings order to what is out of control. And some argue that there's a kind of secondary layer to creation because where was that chaotic mass? What was that, you know, that God brought order to? So it's really, really fascinating. What I'm trying to say is, what if there are multiple cultures, cultures that talk about, that have a creation story and chaotic water is involved? Does that mean somebody's stealing from somebody else? 
or The antecedent is God. It's the actual act of creation that did have water uh, theme uh, in it. And even, of course, the judgment of Noah and the flood. So they're boring from us. We're not boring from them. You know, it's, it's, it's the common denominator that God created the heavens and the earth. And it involved water miracles and bringing order to chaos and those kinds of things. Does that make sense? So I'm striking number three. I'm not going to go with number three. All right. As I interpret the text. Okay. Um, is there a literal primordial creature? Um, I'm going to go with Sloan that there actually were creatures. There really were. And is this one of those creatures? I, I don't know. I, I, I can't go with one because I don't think the context lends itself to that. But I do think Sloan is on to something. There were fascinating creatures that existed on Earth. Yeah, how did people, how did artists know to draw the creatures they drew? Right. That, where did that come from? Exactly, Plus exactly. There's still, there's still things that we have somewhere. Yeah, you can look at some of the Hittite, like the Hittite myth. The carvings will blow your mind of this massive serpentine coiled fierce dragon, you know, which leads to the idea, do dragons exist or were they real things? Um, so, yeah, uh, I agree also Sloan, it's not a hippopotamus-like creature. You know, that's the stuff of a uh, Precious Moments Chapel <laughs> scene. No, <laughs> not a friendly hippo. Um, I don't think it's for, I, I, I think if it was, there'd be different, different language. I, I go with, with four and five. I, I mean, uh, five and six, I'm sorry. I go with five and six. I think that makes most sense of the text uh, because when you, when you look at it, Assyria is straight to the north, right? And Babylon, if you go straight north, you gotta go up and over to get to Babylon. That's where Abraham came from. All right, that's Iraq. All right, in fact, arguably the original location of the Garden of Eden, by the way. And it came out of that. And those enemies, because you can't go across the desert, you can't do that, you'll die to get to Israel. You got to go north, up and over, and you got to come down. And the enemies are coming from that route. And then you've got the enemy from the south, Egypt, which is the mix of sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're a foe. But they're a threat nonetheless. And then um, uh, and that the, these are the very people that will be judged for those that threaten the vineyard of God, which is, by the way, language that Jesus used in, in Matthew 21 and other places about God has a vineyard and he waters it and he fertilizes it and he does all these things to the vineyard. And what did the vineyard do? Did it produce fruit? No, it did not produce fruit. And God keeps working with the vineyard and eventually he, he gives up on the vineyard and he tells the, the workers, cut it all down. We're done. We're starting over. Now that parable of the vineyard and the effort to protect it and fertilize it and then eventually judges it, who is that targeting? Now we're in the New Testament. Who is it targeting? Do you recall? And What's that? And exactly, Maddie. Exactly, yeah. Judging the vineyard keepers 
uh, or the vineyard and the fruit trees for not producing fruit and blaming, of course, the religious leaders of the day. So I think it's a descriptive language for Israel's enemies, but I also think uh, it's, it's a hint at Satan because it's what, I, it's what John grabs in Revelation to describe the chaotic sea monster, the dragon, that comes out of the sea and, and tries to destroy Israel. At that point, it's Rome. Rome is the great dragon, the great beast. Does that make sense? And so, okay, all right. So how do we pull it into our world today? Uh, I love what uh, Dr. Oswald said, his, his brilliant scholar of Isaiah that Leviathan at this point is the epitome of a violent and dangerous and abusive culture. Leviathan is the epitome. If we're going to do like transcultural application that applies to all cultures at all times, it's any person, the Leviathan, the deadly dragon, is any person or any group of people or any nation that is brutal, violent, and brings harm to the innocent and causes the most gross and disgusting forms of human, human suffering. Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, and the good old U.S. of A. and abortion. And God will punish the government of the United States of America because of its endorsement of human trafficking, pedophilia, and abortion in this nation. And what's going on in Hollywood? Yeah, with with the film industry in Hollywood, I think I think those entities are like a modern day kind of Leviathan, the great dragon. Okay. Now let's let's dig in just a little bit, and we'll we'll wrap it up. Um, after this, he shifts into the language of the vineyard. We've commented on that already, and then and then something curious happens in verse seven. Like the striking of him. Now, in your translation, is him lowercase or uppercase? Upper. Upper. But I know the those who struck him, him is lower. But it says he has he as as upper struck Israel as he uppercase struck those who struck him lowercase. Yeah. So God will judge his enemies. All right. But it's also curious language to say. How has God mistreated anyone? Does God act like Leviathan? Is he the brutal one marching in and just leveling nations and leveling cities? No. No. He is righteously bringing punishment on those who rightly deserve it. All right? Who's striking who? And what's the motive? And who's throwing the first punch? All right, verse 9. And this is, boy, are we getting at the heart of some stuff here in verse 9. Therefore, through this, Jacob's wrongdoing will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. Now we're getting at what's really going on. And that is, is Israel willing to destroy all her altar stones to pagan gods, localized religions, all the Baals, the Asherim, all these things, destroy them and make them like chalk. And if Israel will not do that, 
The judgment of God will continue, which will be the fortified city will be isolated, the homestead deserted, abandoned. The calf will graze and it will lie down and feed on its branches. In other words, wild animals will begin to populate the cities of Israel. Because Israel is choosing to worship false gods and not willing to worship the true God, Elohim Adonai. So, all right, let's look at some scripture. Let's look at um, 2 Peter 2.22. 2 Peter 2.22. Someone read that. What do you think he's talking about? There's something in the human heart. When you read Jeremiah 17, there's something in the human heart that's very, very evil. And the potential for us to return to evil ways, evil histories, or to just flatly go after anything that's against God is always in place. That dynamic is always there. Okay, what about, uh, this is interesting, turn to Hebrews, everybody turn to Hebrews 12, because what we're really trying to do right now is define repentance. What does repentance look like? Okay, Hebrews 12, and this is an amazing section of scripture that deals with Jacob and Esau. So look at verse 14. This is Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, how's that for a call to discipleship? See to it that no one, no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many people are defiled or many become defiled. And that there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Wow. Yeah. By the way, regarding the comment about sexual immorality, um, that's code language. That's a very, that's a very Israeli code. What does it mean? Because as Westerners, we think, well, it's, it's actual human sexual behaviors. But what, what is it really in Israeli language, in Jewish language, when you say sexual immorality? What, do you, what are we referring to? Do you know? I know it's a pop quiz, I know. Going after false gods. It's, what's that? Idolatry, yeah. yeah. Just going after false gods. And then in the commentary in Genesis, in the comment here, Jacob show, Esau shows the idolatry that his belly is more important than doing the will of God. And he is willing. Now, you've got to understand, they're establishing the nation of Israel and the bloodline, right? Nothing can get in the way of that bloodline. I will raise up a nation. You will have a son, Right, Isaac, the whole story, and Isaac and the two boys, all these things. 
Nothing can stop the bloodline. And Esau said his belly and his hunger was so dominant that he was willing to trade the birthright for a little bowl of red bean soup. Is what Jacob had made. Yeah. And that is considered on a spiritual level sexual immorality. Okay. And then we do realize what he did. I, I got a bowl full of mush. And I lost my birthright? He starts bawling. He starts crying. The same Sure, right. Yeah, the idea yeah, of your side with Rome. Thing, yeah. But they actually lost their right to be in heaven. Yeah, yeah. It's serious stuff. And then that amazing language. He cried about it. He wanted the blessing. But he found no place for repentance, even though he cried about it. So the issue is repentance, okay? And from an Isaiah standpoint, what does repentance look like? The turning of the stones of idolatry into pulverized chalk. Make sense? If, if we could bear with the, um, the vulnerability of God's word, we would say this. Sometimes we Christians are really good and skilled at appearing to be holy. We appear to be holy. We use holy language. We're at the right spot at the right time regarding holy matters. But our hearts are far from God. And the secret sins of our hearts are serious, serious. And instead of taking the altar stones that were used to worship the Asherim and the Baals and all that stuff, instead of destroying them and getting them out of our lives, we secretly hide the stones and we keep them tucked away. Um, Jesus makes the language even harsher. If your eye offends you, if your hand offends you, right? In other words, Jesus say, Jesus is teaching us that if you understand the urgency and what the full import of repentance is like, you stop, you cut it off, you destroy it. It's not something you dabble in. It's not something you tease along in your little decorative altar stones that you, you've got squirreled away that nobody knows about. And crying in deep emotional distress is not equivalent to repentance. It's not the same. And we can cry and have the most severe pity parties ever and we can funkify ourselves and get a depressive state and, you know, and, and you know, and get in a dark hole and pull a rock over us. And, you know, if, if we feel bad enough, God will show, God will pay attention if we make ourselves feel really bad about it. You know, no, no, no. Are we willing to take those things that are idols in our lives and crush them? Literally get them out. Get them out. Does it make sense? Yeah. 
Repentance is a serious thing. One last verse and we'll tie it up. Everybody turn to Romans 6.21. Romans 6.21. It's, it's a really, oh man, Paul, what that guy does. 6.21, and he, and he says this. Um, Therefore, what benefit were you deriving? Were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. And so you, you get this like the man of James 1 is conflicted. The man of Romans 7 that's conflicted. It's like when, when we're in church, we'll talk about certain things as other shameful. Shame, shame. But when we're alone, we try to derive benefit from those things. Yeah. Yeah. Which means we are maintaining our asharim for keeping the idols. Yeah. Whatever form they may take. You know, whether it's a, a belly that wants a, you know, didn't do well hunting that day, so you're willing to settle for a bowl of red bean soup and forfeit the lineage, your inheritance. <clears throat> okay. Um, verse 12, interesting. On that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing stream of the Euphrates River to the brook of Egypt. Do you thresh water? Janice, you, you come out of the farmland? <laughs> no. No. You don't thresh water. So God's mixing his metaphors. Yeah. No matter where you are, doesn't matter. From the boundaries of the extreme, boundaries of the Euphrates that rolls through Iraq to the south, way to the south, in the Nile and its tributaries in Egypt, from everywhere, the very people that punish my people, I will judge and I will call them back. So it's the language of restoration. I'm going to beat the chaff of Egypt off of you. I'm going to thrash the chaff of Babylon off of you. I will get to who you really are and I will bring you home. Even if I have to do it out of water. And it will come about on that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria, Janus the dragon, the evil twisted serpent of Assyria, who were scattered all the way to the way south to the Egypt and the wicked evil serpent of Egypt. From all of them, those monsters will flee from me with my sword. When you read right out of the gate in Revelation 1, what's in the mouth of Jesus? There's a depiction of Jesus. What's that? A sword, yeah. And what is the sword? Or what he says it's the words that come out of his mouth that is as it were a massive sword yep he will draw the sword and he will slay those wicked nations that are abusive yep and Israel be restored and they will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in, in Jerusalem. Okay, you're the body of Christ. What do we draw out of chapter 27 that we can literally live out today so that we are like Israel and we have ears to hear and eyes to see? 
or like Isaiah intends. What do you think? How do we pull this into our world today? Something I'm thinking of is to we each need to examine our lives to make sure that we're not deceiving ourselves on whose side we're on. Yeah, yeah, that's so we good. We think too. we're on God's side, but our actions and our heart motives, yeah. maybe even the way we treat people unknowingly, prove that we're not. Yeah. We've, we've set up idols, and idols can take all kinds of forms, right? Yeah. Yeah, and if God doesn't have our attention, he will disturb <coughs> what does. <laughs> God doesn't have our attention, he will disturb what does. Have our attention. Anybody else on how Isaiah twenty or um, Isaiah twenty seven, yeah. How that applies to us. Okay. So um in in taking the Lord's Supper tonight I <coughs> I want us to have hope um, that if we are like Israel and, you know, Jacob's wrongdoing is that Jacob set up altars to pagan gods all throughout the land. Idolatry, right? And... Jacob wouldn't make room for repentance because he did, if he did, he would have destroyed the pagan altars. And so God continued to allow Jacob to fall under the judgment of Assyria, to fall under the judgment of Babylon and Egypt until, until Jacob broke and he realized it's not worth it. I got to come home. Does that story remind you of something? Luke 15? Yeah, absolutely. But it's in the pig pen that he finally came to his senses. And he realized, what benefit do I have in the things of which I'm ashamed? Forsake. We have to forsake those things. And we have to go hard after God. Now... You know, you think of all the evil that that boy did, whatever it was, we really don't know. When he came home, how did dad act? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, came running for the sun as the sun was approaching him, yeah. So the other prophets say, man, God's quick to forgive. He loves, he's quick to forgive. He, um, he wants to restore God does not delight 
and punishment. He wants to tend his vineyard and to guard it and protect it. He wants it to bloom and cover the earth. He's a good God. He's not bad. He's not bad. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we should be reminded that there's a bit of a prodigal son in us, right? A bit of a prodigal daughter in us. And that the reality of that is so profound that the servant of the Lord, John, writes, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's all of us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, And if we say that we have not sinned, we are actually making God out to be a liar. Can you imagine telling, (laughs) our telling God you're a liar? Wow. And his words are not in us. And then, and John gives the most compassionate verse. He said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. But if anybody does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the one who's the full payment, the propitiation, the satisfying offering for our sins and not for ours only, but really for the whole world. So what I'm saying is we can smash the altars to the Asherim and we can go home and we can be clean and he will love us and he will meet us with a hug and a kiss and restore us. I think one of the ways that the serpent deceives us is by guiding the Christian into having a very damaged view of their sin and their past. And he does that by creating so much shame that we literally believe we're beyond the love of God. Can you soak that up? The enemy creates within us so much shame that we literally believe we don't love ourselves, and so that's part of the root of it, and we extend that, and we don't believe others love us, and we don't believe God loves us, and so we literally grind ourselves into a state of misery and an odd, really twisted and and damning kind of idle forms and that is we buy the idea that I've got to pay for my own sins by my misery and if I go deep enough in my misery God will somehow have compassion on me that's not repentance that's a real twisted form of trying to be your own savior it's really bad really unhealthy It's okay for prodigal sons to go home and prodigal daughters. It's okay. It's okay. God knows already. He knows the mess, okay? You're not going to surprise him with your stuff. It's okay to go home. And when we take the Lord's Supper, certainly from the Apostle Paul's perspective, absolutely that's true. This is a reminder that it's okay to go home and it's okay to sit at the table. It's okay to do that. So... 
I receive from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray, Father, thank you for your love and grace. Thank you that you take prodigal sons and daughters home. Thank you that you call us to remove the idols and the things that make us stumble. Thank you that you are the God of hope and the God of love and the God of life. And your light is the light of men. We love you and we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.